we'd like to take a moment to tell you about our other podcast, Everyday Saints. Everyday Saints is about the topics we all want to hear, and maybe some you don't even know are a thing. Hosted by me, Valerie Loveless, we delve into the things Everyday Saints want to know more about. Little-known temple facts, challenges from the prophet, how to live your best life in the spirit of the gospel, and more. Look for the Captain Moroni in your podcasting app. Brought to you by Cedarfort Publishing and Media. Welcome to the Come Follow Me with David Ridges podcast. I'm your guest host, Ari Vandegraaff, the author of the Super Sunday Activity Book. This week, we are covering sections 58 and 59 of the Doctrine and Covenants. We are nearly five months into our year-long study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And in those five months, we've covered a lot of stuff. Yet, would you believe that this week's study involves revelation received only 16 months after the organization of the church? I can't imagine what a whirlwind it must have been to be an early member of the church. Just consider where we are in today's lesson. These revelations along with section 57, are the first to be received in the state of Missouri. Think of it. In less than a year and a half, an early member of the church would have seen the church organized in New York, relocated to Ohio, and then received word that it was destined to move again to Missouri. It's exhausting. Exhausted would certainly describe what the Joseph and Polly Knight family likely were feeling, when sections 58 and 59 were received. The Knights, as you likely remember, were some of the very first converts to the church. The family met Joseph Smith in 1826, when Father Knight hired a young Joseph Smith as a laborer. At the time, Joseph Knight was a prosperous landowner, with four farms, a grain mill, and two carding machines used for preparing wool and cotton for spinning to his name. Knight was immediately impressed with the young Joseph Smith, calling him the best hand he ever hired. And the entire Knight family was drawn to the story of the gold plates. In fact, on the night that Joseph Smith first obtained the gold plates from the angel Moroni, Joseph Knight Sr. was at the Smith home. Throughout the translation of the Book of Mormon, the Knights continued to support Joseph Smith. At one point, Father Knight sent Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery some paper and food so they could continue uninterrupted with the translation of the Book of Mormon. Perhaps the most important support Joseph Knight provided Joseph Smith, though, was the horse and sled he lent him during Joseph's courtship of Emma Hell. After the church's organization on April 6, 1830, the Knights were some of the first members of the church. Along with some of their neighbors, the Knights formed a branch in Colesville, New York. After the center of the church moved to Kirtland, Ohio, the members of the Colesville branch were instructed through Revelation to move to Kirtland as well. They did so at great financial cost. Led at this point by Newell Knight, Joseph and Polly's son, the Colesville branch left home and property to travel to Kirtland in April 1831. When the Colesville branch arrived in Ohio, they soon learned that the land where they were to settle in the Kirtland area was no longer available to them. Lehman Copley, a recent convert who had promised to give some of his land to the members of the Colesville branch, backed out of that agreement. 
As a result, the Colesville Saints arrived in Kirtland with no place to stay. Finding themselves in this precarious situation, the members of the Colesville branch went to Joseph Smith for direction. That direction came in the form of Revelation, now canonized as Doctrine and Covenants section 54. Kirtland was to be little more than a way station for the branch, as they were now commanded to move to Missouri. Two months after arriving in Ohio, the Knights, along with the other faithful members of the Colesville branch, embarked on a nearly 1,000-mile journey to Jackson County, Missouri, which is quite a trek. In fact, the journey from Ohio to Missouri is roughly as long as a trek from Winter Quarters, Nebraska, to the Salt Lake Valley. Giving up on their four farms, grain mill, and other luxuries to travel a long distance to Kirtland, and then an even longer distance to Jackson County, Missouri, was a huge sacrifice for the Knights. But it wasn't the biggest sacrifice they would make. Polly Knight, the family matriarch, was quite ill when the Colesville branch embarked on their long journey to Missouri. In fact, she was so sick that at one point on their journey, Newell Knight disembarked off the boat the group was traveling on to purchase lumber for a coffin in anticipation of his mother's passing. But Polly was so determined to set foot upon the land that would be identified as Zion that she completed the difficult trek. According to Newell Knight, as quoted in David Ridge's Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants Made Easier, Polly Knight's greatest desire was to set her feet upon the land of Zion and to have her body interred in that land. Sister Knight would live to see Zion, dying within two weeks of her arrival in the land of Zion, and was the first Latter-day Saint to be buried in Missouri. Now, regular listeners of the Come Follow Me with David Ridge's podcast will recognize most of these details from an excellent podcast covering sections 12 and 13 with guest host Casey Griffiths earlier this year. In that episode, Brother Griffiths provides a wonderful overview of the remarkable Knight family. I'd recommend listening to the first couple of minutes of that episode to reacquaint yourself with these early Latter-day Saint stalwarts. At the same time the Colesville branch was traveling from Kirtland to Missouri, Joseph Smith and a delegation of church leaders were also making the long journey to Jackson County. After dropping hints for weeks about the promised location of Zion, Joseph took the nearly month-long trek to Missouri to unveil the revelation that Jackson County, Missouri was, in fact, the location of Zion. This revelation is found in Doctrine and Covenants, section 57, and was included in last week's Come Follow Me lesson. Among those who made the trip to Missouri was Edward Partridge, the church's first bishop. Prior to joining the church, Partridge was a hatter. Upon his calling as bishop, Partridge was instructed to dedicate all of his time to the church, with the promise that he would receive a just remuneration for all his service. This is different from today where bishops are only expected to dedicate, say, 80% of their time to the church, and the only remuneration they receive are of the spiritual sort. All right, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Bishops today dedicate 85, not 80% of their time to the church. And while the Knight family was likely feeling exhausted upon arriving in Missouri, 
Bishop Partridge was surely experiencing a number of strong emotions too. You see, in the revelation that identified Independence, Missouri as Zion, Edward Partridge was also directed to move to Independence to help prepare Zion for the settlement of the saints by acting as the church's agent in purchasing land in the area. This revelation seemingly caught Bishop Partridge completely off guard, at least based on a letter he soon wrote to his wife back home in Kirtland, informing her of the change in their circumstances. Partridge encouraged his wife to bring their five daughters with her to Missouri. Far from the promised land of plenty at the time, Partridge warned his wife that they would be facing challenges in Missouri. We have to suffer and shall for some time many privations here, which you and I have not been much used to for years. Despite those challenges, Lydia Partridge and her five daughters soon joined Edward in Missouri. Given the anxiety, stress, exhaustion, and other emotions that were likely roiling around those first saints to arrive in Missouri, it is a tender mercy that sections 58 and 59 offer so many words of comfort directed towards those very saints. And, given the upheaval we've all faced over the past year and a half, these sections can serve as a balm to us as well. Let's start with section 58. Received on August 1st, 1831, a week and a half after the revelation designating the land of Zion. Aware of the hardships these first saints in Missouri will be facing, the Lord begins with counsel regarding trials and tribulation. For verily I say unto you, Blessed is he that keepeth my commandments, whether in life or in death. And he that is faithful in tribulation, the reward of the same is greater in the kingdom of heaven. Ye cannot behold with your natural eyes, for the present time, the design of your God concerning those things which shall come hereafter, and the glory which shall follow after much tribulation. For after much tribulation come the blessings. Wherefore the day cometh that ye shall be crowned with much glory. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand. This is a quintessential Latter-day Saint scripture. Our vision of heaven differs greatly from the rest of the Christian world. Our theology is not content idling eternity playing a harp while resting on a cloud sipping ambrosia fruit drink. No, we are interested in building and progressing to something more rewarding than eternal rest. It makes sense, then, that after much tribulation come the blessings, because, as another oft-quoted scripture teaches us, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. For Latter-day Saints, Trials aren't just meant to serve as a test to pass, but as a learning experience from which our character can grow and improve. I love the way Elder Jeffrey R. Holland expressed this idea in the October 2020 General Conference. With apologies to Elder Neil A. Maxwell for daring to modify and enlarge something he once said, I too suggest that one's life cannot be both faith-filled and stress-free. It simply will not work to glide naively through life, saying as we sip another glass of lemonade, Lord, 
Give me all thy choicest virtues, but be certain not to give me grief, nor sorrow, nor pain, nor opposition. Please do not let anyone dislike me or betray me. And above all, do not ever let me feel forsaken by thee or those I love. In fact, Lord, be careful to keep me from all the experiences that made thee divine. And then when the rough sledding by everyone else is over, please let me come and dwell with thee, where I can boast about how similar our strengths and our characters are as I float along on my cloud of comfortable Christianity. Now, I found when discussing a particular topic and an Elder Holland quote is used, it's best to let him have the final word as you'll be hard-pressed to say anything more profound. So, let's move on, shall we? Here's more great counsel to Bishop Partridge, the Knight family, and the other saints gathered in Missouri with Joseph Smith at the reception of Doctrine and Covenants 58. For behold, it is not meet that I should command in all things. For he that is compelled in all things, the same is a slothful and not a wise servant, Wherefore, he receiveth no reward. Verily I say, men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, and do many things of their own free will, and bring to pass much righteousness. For the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. For self-motivated saints like Edward Partridge and Joseph and Newell Knight, these verses would have been welcomed. Not only because it would have likely taken weeks to communicate back and forth between Joseph Smith and Kirtland and the saints in Missouri, but because the Lord is encouraging them to stretch and grow. What does the scripture mean today? It means that our missionaries have more freedom to craft lessons that are individualized to the needs of their investigators. It means a move from home and visiting teaching to ministering, where we are free to assist each other as we feel best and as moved upon by the Spirit. It means magnifying callings and serving before being asked. These verses differentiate those who need direction in all things and those who are anxiously engaged in a good cause. Those who need to be commanded in all things are referred to as slothful and unwise servants while those who don't are referred to as agents unto themselves. Again, this is part of our unique theology. God isn't interested in servants. He wants joint heirs. Next, we come to one of the most comforting scriptures in all of the Doctrine and Covenants. After chastising specific saints in the party, the Lord offers these words. Behold, he who has repented of his sins the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. Like most aspects of the atonement of Jesus Christ, I have no idea how this works. But let me offer a thought. When we sin, our Savior Jesus Christ is aware of that sin, not only because he is all-knowing, but because he has vicariously suffered for that sin. Not only does he know of the sin, he suffered for the sin. Is it possible that when we repent of our sins,
Christ not only remembers the sin no more, but no longer remembers the suffering associated with that sin. And if that's the case, there is no better way to show our gratitude for Christ's infinite gift than to utilize that gift through the miracle of forgiveness. A week after receiving section 58, the Missouri Saints received section 59. The majority of this section deals with the Sabbath day, a topic that also would have offered comfort to the weary saints adjusting to the unfamiliar frontier of independence. Before we dive into the specific counsel on the Sabbath included in section 59, let's consider the Sabbath generally. It is interesting to consider the role the Sabbath has played in the history of the church. Consider the following interesting tidbits. April 6, 1830, the day the church was organized, was a Tuesday and not a Sunday. Many Sunday services were held outdoors in Joseph Smith's time. Sunday school began in earnest in Utah in 1849, but the original Sunday schools were independent entities from each other. Fast day was held on the first Thursday of each month until 1896. In some places in the world, members don't meet on Sundays. In Jerusalem, for example, services are held on Saturdays, and in some Muslim nations, they are held on Fridays. In 1980, the church introduced the consolidated three-hour block. Now, many of our listeners likely remember what Sundays looked like before the consolidated three-hour block. Church was an all-day event, with priesthood meetings in the morning, followed by Sunday school, and then sacrament meeting in the evening. Relief Society, Young Women, and Primary were all held midweek. Personally, I'm just old enough to have fuzzy memories of coming home from school and then hurrying off to church for primary. Of course, we've all seen changes in the past couple of years to our Sabbath worship as well. In 2019, the church moved from a three-hour block to a two-hour block. And in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, we like to joke that we moved from a two-hour block to a zero-hour block. Actually, we moved our Sunday worship to the home. Personally, I found at-home service a deeply spiritual experience. Although I'll readily recognize that with a spouse and children still in the home with me, I was in the ideal stage of life to experience at-home Sabbath worship. I remember well, on our first Sunday at home, our industrious children built a podium out of cardboard boxes that we carried in and out of our family room each Sunday in preparation of the talks we we'd take turns sharing each week. Over the course of the five or so months we were responsible for our own worship, my children had the opportunity to prepare a half dozen or so talks each. Now, they might not think that was much of a blessing, but their parents sure do. Since then, we've been able to gather with our fellow ward members, first, once every three weeks, and more recently, every other week, with a third and a half of the congregation. We've also been able to participate at home through streaming broadcasts of our ward sacrament meetings during the weeks where we were asked to stay at home. In our stake, the whole ward will be permitted to meet together again starting next month. It will be nice to once again be a part of a complete congregation. The unique experiences of Sabbath worship this past year 
has instilled in me the importance of worshiping together. Given the deadly nature of the pandemic, I totally support the steps the church has taken to protect its members. But now, with the advent of a vaccine, many areas throughout the world are returning to normal, and this includes church worship. Yet, so much has changed over the past year and a half. Most of us have probably never lived through such a divisive period of time than where we find ourselves today. Masks, vaccines, politics, and race have divided us in an extreme manner over the past 18 months. This period of isolation and differing of opinion has set the stage for us to be reminded that we, despite all of it, are all children of a loving Heavenly Father who understands the world we live in. We need to set our focus on the unifying truth that we are all disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to worship together. We need to be reminded that we have much more in common with each other than where we differ. We need to be reminded that the kingdom of God is eternal, but politics and public health regulations are not. We need to reorient ourselves to what is really important. Worshiping together will go a long way to relearning these lessons. Understanding and appreciating what the Sabbath is was equally important to the early saints, and in Doctrine and Covenants, section 59, they received some great counsel. And that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors, and to pay thy devotions unto the Most High. Next, the Lord directs them, and us, to fill our Sabbath with fasting, prayer, and service. He tells us that if we do so with thanksgiving, with cheerful hearts and countenances, the fullness of the earth is ours. What does it mean to rest from your labors and pay devotions unto the Most High? I love what President Nelson said in the April 2015 General Conference. How do we hallow the Sabbath day? In my much younger years, I studied the work of others who had compiled lists of things to do and things not to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't until later that I learned from the scriptures that my conduct and my attitude on the Sabbath constituted a sign between me and my Heavenly Father. With that understanding, I no longer needed lists of do's and don'ts. When I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear. At our home, we've tried to signal our commitment to the Sabbath by limiting screen time. No video games and limited movies and TV options. With young children at home, this can make for very long Sundays. I was heartened a couple of weeks ago, however, when on a long family walk, one of our go-to Sunday activities, My 11-year-old, unprovoked, told me that despite the fact that he doesn't get to play his favorite games, he appreciates the way Sundays feel at our home. Now, I'll admit, 
We've still got a long ways to go in order to fully hallow the Lord's Day, but we continue to work at it. Finally, given all the wonderful counsel the Lord provides in sections 58 and 59, is it any wonder that he offers the following warning towards the end of section 59? And in nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things, and obey not his commandments. Why is this the case? Perhaps it is because nothing we could possibly endure compares to what God the Father and Jesus Christ endured for us. For Christ endured it all. Everything we have, everything we are, is possible because of them. And as long as we remember that and continue to rely on them, they can continue to shepherd us to safety. The moment we forget that and turn our backs on them, we will find ourselves lost and alone. I began this podcast by discussing the plight the Knight family and Bishop Edward Partridge found themselves in as the Lord revealed sections 58 and 59 to the Prophet Joseph Smith. While the messages found in these sections likely brought the first saints to settle in Missouri comfort, they did not signal the end to their troubles. We are all aware of the church's tragic history in Missouri. The Knights, the Partridges, and other Missouri saints would be chased from their homes multiple times before finally being driven from the state under an extermination order. While in Missouri, Edward Partridge would be forcibly dragged from his home and tarred and feathered in the center square of independence. Days later, Partridge would offer his life to an angry mob in an attempt to prevent further violence towards the saints. There's a lesson in this for us. Just because the threat of COVID is subsiding in certain parts of the world doesn't mean that our trials are all behind us. There are still lessons to be learned, rough edges to be smoothed and polished. But we can learn from the lives of the remarkable knights and partridges. Neither Joseph or Newell Knight ever served in the church's highest councils, yet they never deviated from their testimony. The Knights knew Joseph Smith intimately, both before and after he wore the prophetic mantle. They would be aware of Joseph's very human flaws, yet, unlike the Whitmores or Oliver Cowdery, they never deviated from the covenant path. Both Father Knight and Newell Knight passed away on the trek to Salt Lake, faithful to the end. Bishop Partridge, likewise, was faithful throughout his days. At one point in Missouri, he wrote to his friends in Ohio, I feel willing to spend and be spent in the cause of my blessed master. Bishop Partridge passed away and was buried in Nauvoo. Earlier on the day, section 59 was received. Polly Knight was laid to rest. Clearly, that event was on the mind of the prophet as he offered the following words to open the revelation that would become section 59. Behold, blessed, saith the Lord, are they who have come up unto this land with an eye single to my glory, according to my commandments. For those that shall live shall inherit the earth, and those that die shall rest from all their labors, and their works shall follow them, and they shall receive a crown in the mansions of my Father, which I have prepared for them. I have no doubt that Polly Knight and her family, as well as faithful Edward Partridge, shall enjoy a crown in the mansions of the Lord's Father. It's my prayer and hope 
that we can live worthy of the same blessing. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.